Greetings, beautiful people, and welcome to Queen's Stand Up Support Network Radio. Our purpose and intention is to create a non-judgment zone of support for the leaders and those working to be the change they want to see, where we increase our awareness regarding the experiences that manifest as we navigate through this adventure we call life. Increasing awareness allows us the opportunity to choose to align with the actions necessary to manifest the desired change. You give all of you every day working to live on purpose, and now we intend to give back to you by empowering you to tune into your souls. Let us pray. Almighty Divine Creator, as we grow from strength to strength, we give thanks for this day and the opportunity to expand our vibration as infinite choice makers. Thank you for showing us the way of healing. We are open to receive as we continue to align ourselves with peace. May our homes and hearts be forever filled and surrounded with happiness, healthiness, love, and forgiveness as we live in the present moment, our most powerful point of being. In the name of the Father, the Mother, and the Child. Amen. Mut Kanshu. Ashe. So let it be. people and happy healthy Sunday to you. Last week we were here with three phenomenal people um, talking about the topic of the importance of teaching kids the power of positive thinking. It was a great show. Uh, Check it out, queenstandup.com. Today we are here to talk about the hidden power of vulnerability. This topic has actually created a little bit of a question mark to many of us. What exactly is 
vulnerability and why is it so powerful? Well, since life by definition includes the capacity for growth, reproduction, functional activity, and continual change, in order to fully experience life, we must incorporate these ideas, right? But did you know that in order to grow, to reproduce, to engage in functional activity and change, one must come face-to-face with being vulnerable? That's right. If you're like many of us in the human species, this word might make you cringe. However, being vulnerable has its own hidden power. And today, we're going to tap into why that is. And we're going to connect with our guest host, Dean McFalls, author um, and uh, entrepreneur, and discuss this topic in greater detail. But I want to just say that being vulnerable transforms the way that we live. It takes courage. It helps us to grow. It also requires uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. The opposite of that is making things certain, seeing things as black and white, one way or the other. Vulnerability asks, what else is possible? In, it takes courage, right? It encourages creativity and exploration to love, belonging, and trust, and ultimately joy. So it's, it's worth, it's worth um, discovering and tapping into this hidden power. Welcome to our show, Dean. How are you? Okay, so maybe Dean is having a little bit of technical difficulty right now, so we'll bring him on. Your your line is open, Dean, when you're ready to connect. Um, you can also dial in to join the discussion today at 929-477-2476 and press 1 to indicate that you have a question or a comment or you want to share a story. Feel free to do that. We love that, too. If, you know, getting on live and talking is not really your thing, feel free to connect via the chat um, on the actual blog, talkradio.com forward slash queen stand up. Make sure that you subscribe uh, to our channel so that you can stay updated as well. Uh, you can also connect with me via Facebook if you are for friends on Facebook. That's also an option. Um, I see another line opening up there. Okay. Um, let's see. I think that's you, Dean. Welcome to the show, Dean. How are you? Fine. I'm, I'm on a I'm on a blue snowball. I'm on a microphone. I don't know why it's not connecting. That's all right. Don't worry about it. You're on here now. How's your, how are you? Tell us a little bit about yourself, Dean. I grew up in Seattle, second of five kids. We were a family of Protestant persuasion, middle class. We could call lost, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Uh, I was actually a classmate of Bill Gates at one point, and so I had a relatively privileged life. No trauma except watching around me the world go to pieces with the Vietnam War, assassination of John F. Kennedy, of Robert, of Martin Luther King. The, I saw Jimi Hendrix shortly before he passed away, Janis Joplin shortly before she passed away. So in my heroes and a lot of people that I was into 
were dying or going off to war or being affected by drugs and the breakdown of the culture. So I was looking throughout my childhood and early life for something stable. Now, can you hear me pretty clearly? Yeah. Are we okay? Great. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Um, I began in my senior year to fast, to pray, um, to search, got into Eastern religions, then Buddhism, went off into the uh, wilderness and studied for a year in a wilderness school, which I later worked in for two years. For me, it was like desperate effort to find rock bottom and to do that and put that in the highest priority of my life. I had to lose friends, make changes, certainly stopped smoking weed <laughs> and uh, doing things that I felt were, were distracting me or, or holding me back. And so I, I went into this long period of, of self-denial and you might say uh, we call the via negativa in the Catholic tradition where you deny yourself a lot of things so that you can try to be free. That led me to study the great books in New Mexico for four years at St. John's College. And then I went into theology, eventually became a Catholic, which might need some explanation for some people. But I will say this. I'm six, almost 64 years old. Um, I have a beautiful life now. I'm raising a five-and-a-half-year-old son. I'm married to his mom. But my search took me into uh, many countries. I worked for war and peace. I mean, let me correct that. I worked for and into the nuclear arms race during the freeze movement. I worked with uh, refugees and, and inmates, people at a disadvantage, people that were vulnerable by their circumstances and by their situation in life. And then eventually um, went into the missionary work with Mother Teresa's order. After three years, I came into the Diocese of Stockton, California, and was served as a seminarian and a priest for 20 years. But, but every step of the way, you know, God always kept me in a vulnerable place. He never gave me power, and he never gave me a chance to um, sit on my haunches and, and glory and anything that I had done. He would always take the rug out from under my feet. He would always put me back on ground zero. And so my motto became um, Zen mind, beginner's mind, the idea that we're always beginning again, that we're always um, sort of on an even playing field. And as soon as we kind of presume to have arrived or to have accumulated some kind of power influence, if we're really with God, he's going to do us the favor of, of taking that away so that we can live in him and depend on him. Like we say in the Lord's Prayer, um, Give us this day, our daily bread. And so today I could talk a little bit about my experience and what it did, means to me to um, live in the same area that I served for 20 years as a Catholic priest and seminarian, raising our son and married to his mom in the cathedral, what it means to have gone through this tra transition and why I did and how much it cost us, but how, how beautiful it is with our child, who of course was vulnerable, and his mother was extremely vulnerable, being a woman married to a priest now. But I would like to also talk a little bit about women in the Bible and people in the Bible uh, who were vulnerable, sometimes by choice, sometimes by circumstance, but who worked with that situation to um, change the world. One more thing I'd like to say, though, is that, as you mentioned already, um, being vulnerable is cringeworthy when it's confused with being a doormat or allowing someone to step on us and to, to abuse us, or 
where we're separate, self-deprecating or self-effacing or when we're codependent and we depend on others um, in a sense to for our well-being. That is not what we're talking about, is it, April, when we talk about no, vulnerability? I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up because um, many people, that's what may come to mind, that vulnerability means the quality or state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked and harmed. Yeah, well, you know, there's always the possibility, mm-hmm. but not the not the not the desire or the or the or the choice. No, yeah. Yeah, because you know, when we're vulnerable, right? What's happening? Well, you're left exposed. I mean, it's like right. look at a butterfly when it when it turns to a chrysalis and it's hanging on a tree. And now it's, it's protected by its little cocoon, but but you pull it off, open the cocoon, and it dies. Or a little, a little chicken and egg. Um, it, it's in there for, what, about a month? If you think, oh, I think I'll help that chick out. I'll break that egg open. Uh, it's, it dies. Because vulnerability also involves the, the process of our own strengthening to be able to grow wings or to prepare for the next stage in life. Um, so vulnerability is not, not an easy game to play. But if the chick's not willing to deal with the egg, if the mother hen doesn't want to deal with the pain of laying that egg, sitting on it, <laughs> you know, if the if the but the caterpillar is not willing to to go through that process of change, it they'll never they'll never progress. That's the and that's the important thing. That's the hidden power of vulnerability that we're talking about today. Is that you're, if you're not willing to go through the process of exposing your thoughts and your fears and your wishes and your dreams knowing that others might judge you, they might not agree you, they agree with you, they might criticize you for doing so, then you can keep yourself stuck inside of a shell or the cocoon, you know. It's the willingness yeah. to expose yourself for who you really are, right, authenticity. No pretending, no hiding behind the mass of safety or protection that offers you power. And it takes away the um, power that fear has because if people this experience we are very um, intuitive beings and so if people sense that you're afraid of something of uh, you have the idea of loss the ability to lose in your mind they they can hold that against you you know and try to use that as a leverage over you so if you're vulnerable enough, you know, to expose who you are, then you open yourself up with where you're supposed to really be aligned with in life, what you're supposed to really be aligned with in life. Otherwise, you're kind of holding yourself back. Absolutely. Does that make sense That's to tragic. you? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That is tragedy. Um, why is that tragic? I was looking last what is, night. What is tragic about why is it, that? Why is, well, yeah. Because um, we're on Earth for a mission. I don't think any of us comes into existence without, first of all, the will of a loving creator and the surrounding context or circumstances through which we're supposed to grow. We have a mission. Every one of us has at least a fundamental, central mission in being here. And therefore, I'm talking to people that actually believe that it's very hard to be vulnerable if you don't believe in a loving God if you don't believe you're here for a reason, if you think you're here simply because of an accident of random mutations and natural selection, and you just have no meaning in life except what you can invent, 
then you're going to be very afraid of vulnerability because you won't have something to fall back on except maybe your own construct. But when that construct or when that idea falls apart, then you face despair. But if you are able to believe in this loving God that surrounds you, embraces you, um, tries to infuse you with, with what you need, at least for the day, and will not leave you abandoned, it's much more easy to be vulnerable. Um, last night, I took my son, five and a half years old, to an event at his school. And um, it was just a, a parents and children dance. Um, of course, the kids were out there in the middle dancing by themselves. And at the beginning, my son, he's not used to big crowds. He prefers one-on-one or small groups. And so he stood there with me, and he was looking at me. And he goes, Dad, maybe you can come and um, play with me out here. I go, no, Gabriel, it's okay. Um, there's one of your friends. And one of the friends came over and, and grabbed him and pulled him. And he, then my son did not running and playing for two and a half hours. But it, it just took that initial step. But he did. He could do that because I was there. At the moment, I had to go outside to make a, a call to my wife who was um, had to work. And so um, he didn't see me. So he came out and he found me, he found me and he was crying because I wasn't there. So I said, I'm sorry, I'll stay this time. And, and then I just watched him for two and a half hours. And I think it's that way with God that when we know that there's someone there for us, that won't be, uh, we can afford to take a risk. Um, I let totally me explain agree. a little more about some. I, I, okay, thank I, you. I totally agree with you in terms of um, that we do have to trust in the infinite, right? We do have to trust in the, in the power that brought us into being and know that it's um, always working on our behalf to help us with this process that it brought us into, so to speak. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, when I think about God, you know, and I hear what you're saying, um, I also am hearing an either or, which, you know, it, it's one of the things that um, I guess is my issue is not the right word, but it's for lack of better words, that's what I'll use. But that's one of my issues with religion and people who have um, who feel like, you know, God is one way or the other. That, to me, trying to put God into a box. There are yeah. different now, when ways you say When you say under- one way or sure. Well, because you said. When you, when you, you say go one way or the other, what, what would you mean there? Yeah, because you said, um, you know, when you believe in, I guess, natural selection or evolution, you know, and, and that's only what you trust. You only can trust your own constraints. That's the same thing as saying that, you know, I only, I, I believe in the Bible. I believe in, you know, um, Christianity or Catholicism. It's the same thing. It's, it's just different ideas. One person saying that this is how it happened and this, this is how it didn't happen. But if we can just um, agree to disagree and just say, you know what, we don't know, you know, exactly, for real, for real, we don't know. You know, we, we have yeah. our beliefs, right? We have the ideas that we've been um, gifted to, to us from, you know, generation after generation. But ultimately, we don't know. We sh- we're sharing ideas, but we do agree that there, most of the, for most of the time, we believe that there is something that's keeping things going. We believe that, you know, there is a great power and energy that, that causes life. Right. Even 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 atheists believe that to a degree, whether we believe that power is within within ourselves or the power is outside of ourselves. We believe, you know, in some things. And so, you know, just the idea to say that either or. Right. If you believe in natural selection, that means that you're trusting your own constraints. 
Well, if you believe yeah. in the Bible, where did it come from? What constraints are you trusting? You know what I mean? You're still trusting mm-hmm. that the ideas that you have are true. You're still trusting that someone, um, you, whoever gave you that idea or helped you give, um, a, a, adopt that inheritance is the end-all, be-all and how things are. But ultimately, we don't. Well, you know, that. can I say this about, to me, sure. about vulnerability? Vulnerability includes and it necessitates the ability to say, I do not have the capacity to fully understand the universe, and I don't fully understand the mystery of what God and life are about. I don't know. You know, we, to this day, we still don't know, as a human race, we don't know what constitutes the dark matter of the universe or why things are. There's still so many things that are not understood because it's beyond us. So when I say God, I don't mean a man with a beard who's pulling a lot of strings. And every move I make, he's either watching or he's approving or disapproving. You know, that, that's kind of a childish view of God. When I say natural selection, um, obviously the science has borne out that, that we evolve and that, and that there is a process of natural selection. So I'm not in the denial camp about evolution. What I meant is that behind all that, we're not in a position either to demand that God be involved in every detail of our life, nor can we say he's not there at all. People had different experiences. Think of people that were in the concentration camps and they had believed that God was their loving companion in life. And all of a sudden they're, they're under the control of the Nazis or, or women who find themselves in domestic abuse and can't get out. Maybe they don't have papers or they don't have citizenship or children that are being abused, you know, the desperate despair they, they feel in the fact that, you know, like Jesus says in the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Um, so I, I, I do believe that to believe in God doesn't mean that we have one set of ideas about how the universe um, operates. I just think at the core of our being, at the core of being, I, I think it's essential to believe that there is a, a, a reason for life and that we're here for a purpose. That's what I was getting at. I got you. Whatever mm-hmm. the mechanism. Whatever the Thank mechanism. you for clarifying that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I'm sorry. I, I hang out a lot with people that are not real strong believers that aren't. I spent most, you know, part of my life as a non-Catholic. I was involved in Zen Buddhism and uh, some Eastern traditions. Um, I did a lot of yoga, not of meditation. So I'm really not into putting all the universe in my order and, and making it. That's, you know, that's, like I said, that's another issue. To be vulnerable means to say that my model of the universe, my concept of God, is only temporary and provisional. But there are, there are stories in the Bible that are so helpful when you talk about vulnerability and I don't know, since this is a queen stand up, um, mm-hmm. you take the first person like Eve who, whose husband didn't say anything when the devil came up, you know, <laughs> and just stood there. He was working on his truck where he's watching football or whatever he was doing when, <laughs> when, when the snake came, and then put her in that position. Why was she in the position of having to be the one to talk to the liar? You know, why does the Bible put her there? Why did we put her there? Why does Eve get a bad rap? when she's the mother of all living. What, that gets things started off in the wrong way, you know? So that's, that's a vulnerability for all women now because people used to say, well, because Eve fell while women are subject to temptation by the devil. But then you look at later women, Sarah had to wait 25 years for the promise and had to watch her husband have a baby with another woman. Um, later on in the, in the Bible, you have Deborah, the warrior, in Judges, the book of Judges. And then you have this woman, Jael, 
who received the enemy into our tent and then put a tent stake to his head. <laughs> um, you have women like Judith or Esther the queen who had to be in positions of great vulnerability to accomplish what their mission was. And both of them also got to the heads or the, or the, the leaders of the enemy and were able to neutralize. Um, there's such fantastic people in the Bible. Of course, mother, Mary's the mother of Jesus. And can you imagine that with all the Pharisees surrounding them under Roman occupation, she's probably a teenager, and all of a sudden she's found pregnant out of wedlock. And her husband, who's a gentle, caring man, also very vulnerable, decides he's going to quietly divorce her so that neither one of them will be exposed to getting you know, condemned or stoned or whatever. And I mean, I don't, I don't mean stoned with weed. I mean, you know, killed. Um, so these are, these are great stories. The whole Bible is full of people who are vulnerable. Moses gets put in the water in a basket as a baby. Um, Joseph, the patriarch, gets sold into slavery in Egypt um, before that. Uh, and then, of course, Jesus is the ultimate story of vulnerability because he's, he's born in, the, in a manger. Um, he, he's fulfills his mission by being tortured and nailed to a cross. That's vulnerable. He had to have a lot yeah, of faith. That... And that's why he yells on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? But then at the end, he says, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Indeed. A lot yeah. of great leaders have made a lot of sacrifices uh, and be, had to become yeah. vulnerable to help the progression uh, and help us to see the, the power that is available to us in this experience. They helped us to see the power of faith and trusting in um, spirit, you know, yeah. God, you know. Absolutely. So, yeah, my my favorite hero almost from the last century would be um, like Nelson Mandela. He spent 27 years incarcerated. Many of his fellow inmates died during that time. But somehow he, he stayed alive. He educated himself. He decided to become nonviolent. And then he becomes the president, uh, the first African-American um, president of, of South Africa. I mean, that is, what a story. Yeah. But also the year amazing. I was born was the year of um, mm-hmm. the coming out of the civil rights movement. And my hero who refused to give up her seat on the bus in 1955 and sparked the Montgomery bus boycott. That kind of stuff is beautiful. Yeah, that's vulnerability at its best, at its core, because I can imagine that so many people were, like, you know, telling her why, why you know, it's, it's not worth the risk. Like, you know, like, um, they're going to hurt you. They're going to harm you. Um, and I'm sure that she had to be trusting in a higher power during that moment to protect her. You know, and say that it, this it's time for a change. Like, we can't continue to go on like this because we're scared, right? Because, because we, we're uncertain about what will happen. And she wasn't alone. She wasn't the only one, you know. But yeah. it's an idea whose time has come. And sometimes you don't have a whole, you know, entourage of people supporting you with, you know, taking those vulnerable steps but you still know that you have to do them anyway, right? You still know that you have to stand authentically trusting that you have the right to share your feelings and your thoughts and your beliefs that you, that you 
develop in this experience, you have a right to share that with the world and you have a right to express those feelings with the world. Yes, like right? brings because up on the case of Rosa Parks, you know, I mm-hmm. wonder what she went through. I know that I believe she had previously tried to resist in one way. There was she was not the first person to refuse to give up her seat, but mm-hmm. certainly she became the figurehead for the Montgomery bus boycott. And then after that her life was tough, the death threats. Mm-hmm. Um, her mm-hmm. husband wasn't exactly thrilled with all they're going through as a family. I think mm-hmm. they have to move, just like Martin Luther King had his home bombed and um, the church got bombed. And they're, they're, these people paid a very high price for um, making mm-hmm. a change, transformation society. Um, like I say, my own story, I was inspired by these stories, mm-hmm. and yet I grew up in a privileged situation. So for me to take upon myself sacrifices, um, I had to find a connection to the to the um, causes. Like my first, I'd say, cause I got involved with was the migrant farm workers and, and the Cesar Estrada Chavez and the um, farm workers of America. But it was the United Farm Workers. Eventually, I got involved in Eastern Washington a bit with uh, some of the workers. I began to. Uh, learned about their life, and we went to visit them, came back to our church, and we passed a resolution in support of the United Farm Workers, and we actually started to boycott a little bit in Safeway. Um, so I began to learn early on that, that there are ways to identify with a group, even if I'm not part of that group. Um, but that was still, for me, just sort of uh, stepping out of my little box. Eventually, okay. though, I, I started making those choices in life that led me more and more, you might say, into the wilderness of solitude. And um, I, let me just say that when I became Catholic, that was a huge loss on my part. How so? I'm sorry, my alarm clock went off on my phone. Even though I turned it off, it went on. It was, it was still on. <laughs> so, um, but let, let me talk mostly about my being a priest. I was a priest for 18 years here in mm-hmm. California. And when I became a priest, you know, a lot of trappings came with it. Uh, there's automatic presumption on the part of the people back then that, that you are part of the family, especially if you're young and friendly and you uh, dedicated. Um, I was involved in prison ministry with gang activity, school, chaplaincy. I worked as a chaplain with the police department in different cities. So I did a lot of things that did get me connected to people. I didn't feel alone. Um, but my struggle was that, from the moment I became Catholic in 1981 at the age of 25, um, God, sent the, God started sending beautiful queens into my life, <laughs> beautiful women that were, that were Catholic or, or, or very spiritual. And previous to that, I had had very close friendships. I had some relationships that were close, but I'd always felt that um, I was called to be 100% at service to God. And, so, and, I, and I felt I was called to be a priest. So by the time I became Catholic, I thought, okay, well, this is going to get a little easier uh, because the Catholic Church didn't have an option for being married and being a priest. So I thought, okay, maybe I'm meant to be just 100% for God, 100% for people, for church, for service. And yet on um, the day I decided to become Catholic, I was at a retreat, and this beautiful woman there was taking the role. You might say that she was the receptionist there. And we ended up talking, and then she gave me her phone number. <laughs> so here I am becoming Catholic leading a uh, uh, faith-based group with her, getting involved in retreat, and saying, Lord, okay, you want me to be a priest? And then you put this beautiful woman in my path. That was in 19, 
80. Um, that never stopped. So I thought after 15 years, I thought, okay, now I've been Catholic 15 years. Um, I've been, I watched it from Seattle to Israel or to the West Bank to Bethlehem. I went to the Soviet Union. I was working with the disarmament program with citizen diplomacy going everywhere. And instead of getting less interested in relationships, I was gradually getting more interested in relationships. So when I came back and I was working with the Catholic Church to find a place to serve uh, I, I just said, Lord, what do you want from me? Because I feel like I'm meant to be in a companionship or to have some kind of a um, mutual relationship with a woman. And, and how does yeah, vulnerability, how does, how does vulnerability, uh, how is vulnerability crucial to development of relationships? Oh, my God. You say the word love, cross it with the word vulnerability. I mean, you cannot take those concepts apart. Uh, you cannot separate them. And um, if you want to separate them, you end up in struggles for power in relationships that are either distant or non-functional or dysfunctional or abusive. There has to be mutual vulnerability. And, of course, women understand this because women by nature tend to be more vulnerable in relationships, um, psychologically sometimes or, or in terms of their circumstances, cultural circumstances. And above all, in terms of their sexuality, women are the ones that often end up with the worst consequences when a relationship goes sour or when there's issues. Um, last night we were watching the Superman Returns, and, he, and um, <laughs> he's, he keeps leaving Lois Lane, you know, and yet she has a son who's about five years old, the same age as my son. I guess his name is Jonathan, and he's their son. And she hadn't told him until the very end that that was his son. Instead, but he keeps going, you know, goodbye, I'll see you later, and he takes off when he's gone. And I was like, okay, what about Lois? <laughs> She's got a kid with him. And the, the kid, what about the kid? So, yeah, you know, you can't love without putting yourself in a position of vulnerability. But that's why you need the support of the culture, the community, or faith, and, and, and a, a person that's respectful. I think it's helped that we've had the Absolutely. Me Too movement because it's calling men to accountability. I want to stay on the side side that, you know, as a child, I mean, I knew Bill Cosby as a kid, as someone that was just doing incredibly funny records. I had one of his first records of comedy when I was in junior high school. And and we used to listen to his talk, think about when he had tonsils out and when had ice cream, ice cream, I got to have ice cream. We thought it was hilarious. And then all of a sudden, whoa. Um, But the women had to come out eventually. It was the tooth had to come out. So yeah. What is what is Being vulnerability yeah. look what does vulnerability look like in a relationship? Um, of course you know better than me, but since I've had some very positive relationships in my life, I would say there's a mutual accountability, which is difficult. Sometimes for the man, sometimes for the women, but generally it's more for the men, it's more difficult to be accountable. Uh, that is to be honest and upfront, to be open not to have hidden agendas or backdoor exits. I think um, to open one's heart means to let someone else touch our wounds. It's very significant that um, Jesus became characterized by his wounds, and after he rose from the dead, he still had the wounds to say, you know what, I'm with you guys. I still understand. I haven't forgotten. Um, these, are my, these are my calling cards. These are my credentials. This is my, my testimony, my wounds, my open 
you know, he said, Thomas, put your hand in my side. You'll understand what I'm, what I'm here for. And um, I think to be in love means that our wounds do become open and visible because those are the points of entry sometimes for a deeper relationship. We also need to, to be able to put our fate and our lives in the hands of another person, not just for a minute, not just when we're in bed, but, but you know, day by day. Um, and that's risky. That person may not be completely um, trustworthy with, with the, the stuff of our lives. So, you know, I think love is harder and harder now because people spend their time on social media. They can jump from one text to another, from one friend to another on Facebook. We can feel like we're connected to everybody without being connected to anybody. It's harder and harder for people to make that long-term commitment because as soon as it starts to hurt, we can just change the channel. We've got, what, infinite number of channels we can go on on our television, on Netflix, whatever. We don't like that show. Just switch it out. And that's why I think we're in a culture. Look at Hollywood. Look at our, our, our moguls. Look at the people that are our, our celebrities. Most of them do not have long-term relationships, and we've gotten used to it. That's that. That's a, that's, um, I think it's catastrophic for our culture. Wow, that that's a real that that's a really powerful point. That in order to be vulnerable, like uh, it, it it definitely looks like facing your fears as well. Like you know, you can't just switch gears. You have to you know stay committed and go through the process of feeling all of the feelings, not just the ones that feel really good. You have to feel um, the pain. You know, explore the pain. You have to explore. Um, when people don't agree with you, you have to be able to sit and have that conversation like we just did as well. You know, you have to sit and and be willing to go the next level um, and not just um, do what is perhaps easiest and most comfortable. That's a really powerful point. So what what are some conditions that are required for us to open up to being vulnerable, what 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 conditions allowed you to open up and be vulnerable in your life? Are there some specific things that easier for you to be vulnerable with some, you know, in some circumstances as opposed to others? Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that about midnight, which for us is um, you know three hours <laughs> different than yours. But um, mm-hmm. I I don't think it's possible truly to be vulnerable vulnerable in a deliberate and a life-giving way without having a clear sense of our own identity and to have something set in our lives. Um, because if we are not secure in our lives, if we're still in a position of deep woundedness and we're just grasping for security or for some help, this happens often to women who have been wounded or who have grown up in circumstances where um, they weren't fully honored, um, or maybe they had a bad relationship with their dad, you know, or didn't have a father in the in the home. We tend to get into relationships that are dysfunctional. So, to come in vulnerable point or a strong uh, sense of our own solidity as a person can be really dangerous, um, unless you happen to be fortunate to find a person who's very honorable. And, and, and truly loving in the deepest sense of the word. Um, in my case, for example, as I was on my journey to become a priest, 
and, and then once I had sensed that I was, I was t- truly called to that, I, I couldn't really get into a l- real deep relationship because I kept feeling either I'm going one way or the other. Remember, we talked about the either or before. Um, we can talk later about the Catholic Church and why it insists on putting an either or on the priesthood. Um, I'm working now, and I'm and it's my mission now to get over that. I don't think there should be the either or. I don't think that's healthy. Um, but in my case, as long as I was um, heading towards what I felt was my calling and what I really wanted to do, which was to be in the full-time ministry in the Catholic Church, um, even though I met some incredibly beautiful and wonderful women and worked with them and, and sometimes felt extremely close to them, I didn't want to be walking off on, on the relationship when I got close to time to go to seminary. I didn't want to just leave someone hanging or high and dry or, or to form the bonds and then tear them apart. And, and sometimes we see this classic image of the priest. He, he leaves his girlfriend behind or he leaves us behind. And wow, what a, you know, what a decision. Well, what about the person that got left behind? Um, so I kind of kept mm, focused mm. in that direction and, and the relationships could not go as deep as I w- probably should have gone. Um, but after I became a priest, Here's the, here's the strange thing, and the thing that just completely knocked me off my horse. I just could not understand this. Once I became a priest, I felt very solid. I finally, at the age of 40, I finally felt I found my place in the universe. It was all the more necessary. I felt all the more need to be in the relationship. I said, God, what's going on here? I thought mm. I was going to be like complete, you know, and had it together and in a parish working and, and I got a lot of love from the people, but none of that was enough. The more I felt solid as a person, the more I felt the need to be in a relationship that involved um, companionship, communication, intimacy, um, day by day, thinking and praying about the other person, a certain sense of belonging, a solidity in our character and, and the sense of being healed from some of the major family wounds of the past help us to become more authentically vulnerable in a relationship. And it's quite the opposite of what we think. I think it's our more, the more solid we are as a person and the more we feel together, the more we are able to be vulnerable in a life-giving way, which is symbolized by a woman conceiving and giving birth either to a real child or, or, or to something new in her life, you know, symbolically. Right, ideas. That's wonderful. Uh, I, I, I know that it must have been difficult for you. It's difficult for you to um, have the desire to be a priest, right, to feel like that's your calling, but then to have those um, constraints that the priesthood placed on you as a being. Like they've made decisions about what it looks like to be a priest, what's required of you. Like you're not allowed to, as a priest, have a relationship that's what you're saying right ultimately that's not the way it goes you you choose uh, yeah. either a family or you choose god or yeah the that's, that's, the, the that's the false dichotomy but that's the way it's placed that's the way they put it you can either love a woman or you love god or you know either you are with the family taking care of the family or you're serving the church i mean i'll say that's bullshit i mean mm. well, let me explain it this way who serves God more beautifully than a woman who brings a new life into the world or, or, or dedicates herself 
to renewing the universe, you know, with, with love and with, with creativity and generosity. Um, who, who serves God better? You know, a, a loving father raising his children in, in this confusing and broken world in which we are and, and pouring out love on those children. I mean, is that not a service of God? And so when the Catholic Church seems to have this mentality that, you know, either you're single and you're just doing – and you're married to the church. Um, I'm not married to my secretary. You know, I'm not I'm not married to the parishioners. I mean, they all have family lives. I'm supporting their marriages. I was completely and 100% dedicated, and I, and I felt this connection to people that was very deep. There's no question of that. I felt that I was, um, you know, married to the church in that sense, that I was accountable, and I was there for them, and I was responding to their needs, and I was out there day and night, whatever. Um, but there's never – still not the same at all as being a family person. And I, and I don't – in raising my son now, married to his mom in the cathedral here. I'm a Catholic, we have a Catholic marriage. We live in the same place I served since 1994 as a seminary priest. I don't see conflict of interest. I don't see the contradiction. I, I see just complementarity uh, of, of loving each other as a husband and wife and, and, and raising this beautiful son and whatever other children God gives us. Um, that to me is part of the ministry and it, and it enhances and deepens the ministry. But the dilemma I had was that I, I kept following what I felt God had called me to over the years. Mm-hmm. I found mm-hmm. myself um, in, the, in the front lines in a parish, uh, extremely busy as a priest. And I was in a situation where if I talked to a woman in a special way or felt a special way or, or you know, noticed her or looked at her in the way that was more human, then I was not only getting into a sinful situation because I wasn't wow. supposed to go there, but I was actually going to be living a contradiction because I'm standing up there with a collar on and people saying, oh, he's a celibate priest who doesn't have any dealings with women. And at the same time, I am. And yet the mm-hmm. Catholic Church doesn't allow for an alternative unless they happen to be same-sex attracted. Now, if I had been of persuasion of homosexuality or if that had been my orientation, then maybe behind the scenes, you know, as goes on in many places of the world with Catholic Church, even in the highest wow. ranks sometimes, there was certain lifestyles that were just quietly accepted. And, uh, you know, honestly, I saw a lot of that in 1980 when I was coming into the church, 81, 82, I was in seminary. There was a tremendous amount of alternative sexuality going on because we are sexual. You know, we're, to, to be a human being means to be sexual. I mean, God, is, in, in the Catholic tradition, and for many Christians, God is triune. God is a relationship. God is a powerful dynamic of love and giving and receiving and generating life. And, and this is how a true human being should be. A person that's fully alive should be engaged, you know, in, in, in relationship and, and, and giving and life-giving. And so when you're that kind of dynamic personality um, and you find yourself sinning by the very fact that you feel called to someone and you're talking to them in a certain way, it's, it's, a, it's a, not a good position to be in. Because what happens to the women that feel attracted to a priest? I mean, he's mm. sometimes sub- subconsciously to them, he might represent the, the presence of God on earth or the figure of Christ for them, or maybe the, the, the connection they have or the channel they have, maybe the bridge from, from their life to, to the divine. 
I mean, there's a certain sense in which that's valid because the priest is the one that offers the sacraments. She hears the confessions. He offers the Eucharist and marries people and baptizes, you know, and he, and he does have a, hopefully a relationship with the Lord. Um, but what happens to those women? You know, five years ago, 26 women in Italy wrote a letter to Pope Francis saying, look, we have, we have priests for lovers. We love them, and, and they love us, and we don't want to be in the shadows anymore. Well, mm. that situation hasn't really progressed at all. Mm, really? But, but, you okay. know, it's like, that was my concern, too, because there were mm. women I felt very close to, and yet, mm-hmm. because there's so many broken marriages, there's so many people that are, that are single and would rather be with someone, there's so many people that are living in the shadows and pain right now, um, or single mothers, that they desperately need someone to support them, at least psychologically. And so, you know, it's not very safe for a priest to be out there in the front lines who, um, you know, feels that this is still part of their life. No, I, 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 it's not a safe space. And so how was that for you? Like, because it required a different level of your um, growth to say, you know, I love God. I love my calling, but I also love this part of myself. Like that was a vulnerable decision that you made to even make that known, to even be speaking this now. Um, obviously you're not a priest now, Right. Um, yeah, not, not, I don't have the faculties. I've, I've been laicized as of um, the year 2016. Um, okay, because of, because you know, share? Once a priest, a priest always. In my substance, okay. my reality of my being, okay. who I am, I am a priest. I always will be till the end of okay. eternity. But but I'm not able to function as a priest at all, and I never will be again, most likely. I had to give that up. You know what? Yeah. Um, uh, April. But I, so, I want to oh, go ahead. Well, I yeah. was going to ask you, like, how – how was that for you? Like when you, like, how did you feel when you um, first put it out? Who did you first tell, you know, about this, that you wanted to. That I had this issues, this issues. Um, well. Not an uh, issue. That's what you call it, an issue. You had these. You, well, it became okay. an issue because of the circumstances, but, but it's <laughs> okay. really who I was. You're, you're right. I mean, let's not, let's not turn it into a clinical medical issue problem. No, you're right. It was, it was. The reality of who I was. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you know. To as you know, April, women are pretty perceptive, and women mm-hmm. that might be divorced or alone or in a broken situation, um, and they sit there masked and they hear the way you talk and they see the way you greet people. Um, you don't have to be staring at women to come across as being uh, maybe different. I mean, people used to say to me. Um, there's something different about you, Father. You're so human. You know, you're, I feel easy to relate to you. Why don't you come over for dinner to our family? And, and I mean, I, I used to know so many families, and I loved roughhousing with the kids, and, and I loved talking with the parents and with the elderly. So I used to visit a lot of, you know, uh, convalescent homes. I just love people. Um, and yet, who knew first? Well, my confessors. I confess. I still confess regularly. I believe in that sacrament. It's a beautiful sacrament, April. The healing okay. sacrament. So I was from the beginning. I was telling them that I was having struggles. You know that that I was feeling this love for these women, and 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 some were communicating to me that they wanted to like maybe more. They say they call me Father. What a waste. Or um, Father, what you know, what a waste. They like my blue eyes. <laughs> huh? What a waste. Uh, yeah, that's, an old, what, that's a that's uh, a typical expression. 
Oh my God. Oh, okay. uh, you know, I had to wear my clerics all the time. I had to make sure I was wearing my black and white. I couldn't just go out there in public with ordinary clothes because I had some experiences that were, um, you know, like I said, I better, I better identify myself. Maybe I should wear some kind of scarlet letter saying I'm a priest, you know, and I'm not available, even if I look like I am. <laughs> okay. Okay. But, but the, the thing is, um, my, my, the ministry is so beautiful, and I want to make sure people understand this. Mm-hmm. Um, from my point of view, there's nothing more beautiful in the world. There, there's no there's no vocation of work that's more beautiful to me than being a priest. Of all that we can do, and I mean, there's nothing in life that you can't do in a positive way that 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 people really need and appreciate. Whether it's a smile, whether it's a phone call, whether it's a uh, exorcism or a healing service. I get that. Or just, you know, the math. And yet, and yet, at the, my heart of hearts, I knew that to love a woman and be loved was also the most beautiful thing in the universe. And to, and to mm-hmm. give life to a child. But, of course, of course, I said, I'm not going to ever take the risk of bringing a child into the world that I can't care for. So that did give me, um, you know, a certain level of restraint. Also not wanting to leave someone behind, you know, hurt, you know, hurt. Or um, abandoned, and yet I will say, you know, and I've said this publicly, I struggle with the issue of celibacy, and um, I failed, and I had to make amends with God, and then I would, I confessed constantly. I went on, I went on, I fasted, I went on pilgrimages. Every year, I reduced part of my vacation time to take people to pilgrimage sites like like Lourdes or Fatima or, or you know, Mexico City, the Basilica of Guadalupe. Or to monasteries or whatever, because I knew I needed that time, and that that would be half of my vacation would be taking people on on retreat, and then my own wow. time on retreat. It sounds you know, to me end, a lot like the it end, sounds um, like the yeah. Mm-hmm. I was ahead, gonna, go it sounds to sounds me like, like the mini- the mish- the ministry aspect of it is really beautiful, but the religion aspect of it is restrictive, you know, and the religion aspect of it to me is is um, is the sense of trying to control how control God and control the ideas of, of God. You just you know? nailed it on the head of the name. You, you just said it. April, you said it. Um, the book I want to write, I used to call it, you know, let the, let, let there be an option. I'm going to call it, let God make the choice mm. or let God make the decision. Mm. I mean, you cannot tell God what to do. I don't care if you have the keys of Peter and you have the, authority of uh, 1.2 or 3 billion people and you are the Pope and you are the uh, magisterian church. You cannot tell God what God can or cannot do in the life of a person. You can't say, God, you're not free to do the very thing for which you created the human species in which exhibits your image most fully. Um, in the Bible tradition, you know, in Genesis, God says, let us create humanity in our own image now that's the royal we but also our we say he's a trinity god father son holy spirit but whatever you believe it does say our image and then it says okay and god created man male and female he created them so the first thing it says about the image of god is this male and female and then he tells them be fruitful multiply go fill the face of the earth the idea that this creativity this generation of life this complementarity between men and women is something that was ordained from God from the beginning and is the fundamental 
and, I'm, and again, I'm not criticizing anybody who has a different orientation. I'm not going there because that's not my area, right? My area is simply what I'm up to in my life. But I'm just saying that that's presented by the Judeo-Christian tradition being the fundamental um, relationship of, between us and God is that creativity, that, that life-giving stuff. So when a, when a religion uh, puts this kind of constraint, the prohibition, um, thou shalt not pass this line, God shall not call a man to be both married and a priest, and no man who wants to be a priest be married, unless he happens to come from the Episcopal, the Lutheran, the Anglican, the Presbyterian, or another church like that, becomes Catholic as a minister and brings his family with him. That's the back door. There's a, um, and by the way, I do want to say, April, as you probably mm-hmm. know very well, in the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, which has its patriarchies in the Middle East or the East. Uh, and then also in the Eastern Rite Catholic churches, of which there are like 23 rites. Uh, these are Eastern churches speaking their own um, particular languages in the Byzantine Rite that are still united to the Catholic Church and, and still observe uh, the Pope as being their main leader. Uh, between those, they've always allowed most of their priests to be married men. The only difference is that once the priest is a priest, once he's ordained, uh, then they can't remarry or, or they can't marry. That's that's mostly to keep priests from being on the prowl. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it works or doesn't work. But in the Catholic Church, we have the parallel of our deacons. Our deacons okay. are the ones who have to be married by the time they get ordained. They have to have a proven track record that they're, they call it proven virtue, that they are dedicated fathers and family men, but also um, faithful to their Catholic uh, practice, well, they can become deacons for life, and they're called a permanent deacon, and they are married. My, my argument mm-hmm. is, why not let these men in the future become full, um, facult- full faculty priests so that we can supply the need? But that's another issue. The main thing is, yeah. I, I think that when the Catholic Church has made this disciplinary choice, it's, it's not a doctrine, it's not a dogma, because Catholic priests could marry up until um, on and off until the year 1129, the Second Lateran Council. So for 11 centuries, there were cases throughout the world of Catholics in which some priests did marry at some point. Um, even some popes had, you know, mentioned mm-hmm. it. And it's a long story. Mm-hmm. But you I know, you brought to the when, light. You brought to the, you brought to the light, Dean. You know, the very essence of what we talked about in the beginning of you know, how the risk of not being vulnerable, you know, can allow something to go on that is not necessarily the best for our experience or for evolution or for just happiness and joy, us to experience a life of happiness and joy, you know, which I believe is our birthright to experience on some level, however that shapes or forms for us. So the risk, you know, like not being vulnerable enough to share how you feel and be true to yourself was actually could, could like create mental illness, right? It can create disease in the body because if someone's not feeling well or not, you know, um, living their best life, they're not going to be happy. And that's going to affect everybody. You know, it affected so much that it caused the people, it caused the priests to live in secret 
you know, with and and if and and live in secret with you know um, homosexuality, which I'm not saying that that's wrong or right, but if you're living in secret with it, you know, there's something in your it's mind harmful. that's saying it's it, it's harmful. Exactly, it's harmful. To be in the closet, and like that. it's yeah. not it's it's not procreative, you know, and so in terms of like not procreative meaning like is now you know um homosexual you're people not they to, have you're not relationships free to publicly they like right, know, you're not for free example, to express it yeah yeah mm-hmm. go ahead um, i would say that I, you know for example over the years especially when i worked in san francisco um i've known many many men and women who are same-sex attracted i've i've had former close friends even i had a former girlfriend who um when then transitioned over into a same sex relationship. Um, in this case, she's been with her partner for like 30 years. Um, so I have always appreciated among people that find themselves attracted to people of their same sex, special gifts and characters. I mean, like among the men, there's just some guys that are super talented and, and um, sensitive. And I remember going to a gay bar with friends of mine, um, even though I wasn't inclined that way, but we went there and there's some friends of ours that were gay and um the singing, the laughter, the parties I went to, we were doing Broadway music. I, I had a great time. And yet at the same time, there was that tragedy. And, and that was during the AIDS epidemic, by the way, when it was just beginning. Um, so I, I feel for people that um, find themselves in the closet and, and not able to come out publicly. I don't agree with outing them. I think outing them is very um, evil, you know, if they don't want to be outed. Right. But um, well, that's, the, very, the, that's another the point, issue completely. The, Absolutely. But, the point in that is but, that the vul- yeah. not allowing people to be vulnerable causes a lot of secrets. You know, it causes yeah, um, people to not be authentic, and it's dangerous. You yeah, know, I mean, it, it really is. Yeah, it's a position because, of uh, living a duplicitous life. Well, living, I would call it living a lie. Like, we were originally going to call this, um, you know, from living a lie to, to living fully. Yeah, um, I, I just said, but in, in my case, that's why I said I, I don't, I, I mean, I, I made choice. And I, it was, I was free to choose in many ways if I would become a priest or not. And that's what you'll hear from Catholics all the time. Well, he freely chose. He had a choice. He didn't have to become a priest. So once you become a priest, you have to play by the rules. Um, but actually, they, that's a very shallow way of looking at it because I simply put my life in God's hands when I was 15 and then 16 and 17 and then every, all, every year from then, asking always, God, what do you want from me? How can I be most fully um, of service to you and, and to the world and make, make the best impact on the world at the same time, do what's best for me. It was always drawing me to the priesthood, but also to both lives. And so um, even as a priest, for example, I, speaking personally, I was super happy as a priest. I mean, I was never not happy. I, I could celebrate Mass all day long. I could be um, up all night at the hospital or attending to someone who just got shot in the gang uh, drive-by shooting. I could be doing anything. Um, I could just be teaching kids in the catechism class, whatever. And I was always happy because I was in the right place at the right time. But, okay. but I was not um, functioning that well as a person. It's like, for example, April, when I turned mm. 18, I stopped so much of what is normal in life. I, I, got, I left my music behind. I gave away most of what I had. Mm. And for about seven years, I was on this complete path of like renunciation. I, I stopped eating meat. Uh, I didn't for five for four years. I didn't even eat fish, which is my favorite thing. I'm from Seattle, man. Salmon is like, you know, mm-hmm. that's the cat's meow. Uh, and I stopped having treats or like no chocolate. I mean, I mean, chocolate is sacred. 
Um, red wine is sacred to me, but I stopped all that for so long. I didn't drink. Um, and I certainly have stopped smoking weed, which I did when I was um, a little bit younger, although my mom, well, she knows. Uh, and um, <laughs> so, uh, but, but I just stopped everything. I, I started fasting. I went, I'm five foot ten. I have normal build. I mean, I'm a medium build. I used to play football, American football. Um, but I went down from 140 to 115 pounds. I fasted so much. I just wanted to get rid of everything in me that was attachment, that was unfree, or that wasn't, you know, life-giving. And so I almost killed myself. I did that for years. I was, I was doing other things. I was still working. I was in college or whatever. Um, when I came out of that, I thought, okay, now I can start adding things back into my life um, gradually that I think are life-giving. So now, you know, I drink a little red wine every day, a little bit. I, um, I don't eat meat, really, just, just chicken, but um, I do eat fish. And, um, and yet all these things that I did um, were, you know, were so extreme that I was killing myself. How and that's kind of how now? I was as a priest. As a priest, I could, I as a priest, I could eat all I wanted. Um, I was still thin. Mm-hmm. I've always been thin, but I, I, I was dying because I didn't have the relationship. And so I one last plan. question. I told people that, yeah, we, we have I, to wrap it up. We have to wrap it up, Dean. Oh, but oh, I sure. just want to ask you one last question um, yeah. before we go: Is how how did you start? To, how are you feeling now? You know that you've allowed yourself to be vulnerable. How are you feeling about yourself and life? Well, I feel that I'm in the right place at the right time. I'm so happy with the fact that we have a, a son who's beautiful. He loves Jesus. He loves the church. Um, my wife, she just walked into the room here. She's a beautiful woman. She's extremely dedicated. Um, so I'm at peace and, and everyone loves our son. People all around, you know, we're, we're, I'm around the people that still call me Father Dean after five years. They still do. Most of the people. Um, and most people just accept us as we are um, and they love our son. But I will say, April, it's been extremely difficult um, in terms of my vocation or job. I cannot do anything in the Catholic Church. I've tried drawing closer to um, do different kinds of service or, or to work in different capacities, and it's always like need not apply, need not apply. Um, I've tried writing uh, probably 30 bishops, and I've written archbishops or um, cardinals. I've written people who work in the media for the Catholic Church about the situation and my hopes for changing the church. And after about 50 letters in five years, zero, zero, zero replies. Never, never a reply. Nothing. It's like I don't exist. Um, as far as so getting a good job, the, jobs that I really want, the, it's been almost impossible. The, so it's been tough. One of, the, one of the most important things that I'm hearing um, from you is that, you know, when we are vulnerable, it does um, – it puts us in a different – um, category. It, it definitely takes certain energy out of our lives. And we have to practice radical acceptance that people are not always going to accept, you know, our vulnerability. We have to be okay with people are not going to accept the risk of people not agreeing with our ideas and our feelings. But in exchange, we get joy. You know, in exchange, we get freedom. In exchange, we get peace. And so we have to practice radical acceptance and say, you know what, I have to just accept the fact that they're not in agreement with what I'm doing and how I'm living my life, but it was worth taking the step. You know, I'm growing. I've, I've gained so much more than I could any could ever have lost. And we just have to, you know, get to a point where we're, you know, radically accepting that. 
And I think that you on some, a, a lot of levels have gotten to that point that you've accepted the fact, you know, I've written all these letters. Um, they don't want to hear me out. They, 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 they're standing by their viewpoints and that's okay. I can still move on with my life. I can still create a new story. I can still have a beautiful family over here, you know, and I think that that's yeah, an absolutely. important part still, uh, of being vulnerable. And we're, mm-hmm. and we're still very involved in our church because I say nothing can stand between awesome. me and my God. And nothing's going to yeah. stand between us and, and the, what we need to survive and thrive as a family. Because my first yeah. priority right now is my child and awesome. our relationship as a married couple and our relationship to God. And therefore, we don't let this other stuff um, hold us down, even though we're, economically it's been tough. But, yeah, so I think you're right, April, and I think all of us need to come to that point where we say, you know, there's some things that I, I'm not going to sell out on. There's some things I'm going to stand on no matter what the price I pay. And when I get to the end of my life where I'm looking down from the stars, I will say, you know what? It wasn't easy. Life was not a bowl of cherries. But I'm in the right place at the right time, and I'm, and I'm grateful for what I was able to do and, and to live. Awesome. I love that. I want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. Um, where can our listeners go to find your text or if they want to uh, continue to connect with you further, Dean? Well, I have a website. It's called um, my name, Dean McFalls. It's like Niagara Falls, www.deanmcfalls.com. They can also Google my name. They're going to find all kinds of stuff, and some of the stuff they find will not be true. There was one um, – I, w- I was hit with a very – That's always the case. <laughs> yeah, very damaging um, false accusation by a mentally ill woman that said she was possessed. And that went viral and went into the tabloids. So I was, that was a day after I came out with my story. So that's affected okay. me for five and a half years. Um, but mm-hmm. they can also um, – I have a book called Delivered on Christmas. I'm writing um, – I've written six other books that I'm publishing, probably most of them this summer. Um, nice. So I really won't be able to tell all the titles, but one of them is called um, one series is called Dear Gabriel, A Father's Legacy, and I hope to have that published by um, September. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with our community. Um, it is very well received, and I just want to just remind us all of some of the key points that Dean shared with us today. You know, uh, it definitely takes courage to be vulnerable. Um, There is some level of uncertainty, there's some risk, there's emotional exposure, but in the long run, it's worth it, you know, and in order to really do that, you have a a clear, you have to have a clear sense of your identity, you know, and once you do, you're able to be authentic in your relationships, and it definitely may be uncomfortable, but you grow, and you experience a deeper level of intimacy, that allows you to heal and evolve as a being. So, you know, baby steps, you know, are also always good with things like these because this is heavy stuff here we're talking about, you know, that, you're, that you will be taking on. So, you know, start out small, you know, start out sharing a feeling with a loved one, you know, or just, you know, if you have an idea and you don't agree with someone, find a way to say it. And that's practicing vulnerability. So thank you all out there for listening in and, um, here's, you know, we're here with you, rooting on you, rooting for you in your efforts to be courageous in your everyday life. Until next time, be well. Today's show was such a blessing. Join us next Sunday, April 14th at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time as we discuss 
the importance of taking a daily respite. Our guest host will be Betsy Ridgeway. To learn more about Betsy, visit her website at www.sparkinghope.net. Until next time and always beautiful people, be blessed and queen stand up.